Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we will look at the fact that the housing crisis is at a worse point than at any time in recent history. Solutions are available and require political will to bring into reality, but because the problem is now so widespread, we may actually be able to take action that would have been untenable before. Sources today include Future Hindsight, Notes from America, The Majority Report, and the Tom Harton Program, with additional members-only clips from Notes from America and Channel 4 News in the UK. So let's jump right in. Describe the current crisis in housing, and how is it worse than it ever was? Well, I've been doing this about 30 years, starting in the South Bronx. I grew up here in New York City, and I would say the crisis has been getting worse over those decades. But during the COVID crisis, we actually saw rents increasing more than we ever have since we started keeping records. Literally never seen bigger increases, 18% increase in rent year over year. And I think what is different about it beyond the numbers, is the level of homelessness we see on our streets. And so often the housing issues have been problems of the coasts or problems of big cities. Now, I was talking to a senator the other day who said, just kind of nonchalantly, well, our housing crisis in Bozeman, Montana. And it is really that the crisis is everywhere now. The depth of it is so intense that I think People across the country are starting to grapple with issues that have long been issues in New York or other places, but now it's really become a national crisis in a different way. It's interesting that you mentioned that the rents have increased so much, 18% in some spaces, and that there is a housing crisis in places like Bozeman, Montana. What do you think is the source of this crisis? And is it really specifically COVID or is it well beyond that? Well, what I would say is we've had a chronic crisis for a long time. If you go back decades, we've seen that more and more people are paying outrageous shares of their income towards rent especially. And the challenge is that on top of that decades of increases, we then had this incredibly acute crisis on top of the chronic one during COVID. And Part of that, frankly, was that people became much more interested in more space at home. <laughs> when you're working at home, you probably want to have something other than just a bedroom, right? And there was more and more demand for housing. But what we also saw was there was a short-term help for people with rent. They were able to stay in their homes because the federal government put lots of money into protecting people against evictions. But as that money is going away, you have rents that are still much higher than they were, but people's incomes are going back down in ways that are really challenging them. And the most visible crisis that you see out of that is the homelessness on our streets. But there's a silent crisis, too. Families living in shelters, people doubled up across the country, and people not putting food on the table at night or not being able to buy their kids the books that they need or so many other ways that we always say rent eats first. Everything else gets put to the side because rents are going up and up. Well, speaking of rent eating first, in your mind, what is affordable housing? Now, I know that simply means broadly that 
it's a housing that you can afford and that looks different in a place like New York or Bozeman or Detroit. But at Enterprise, how do you think about affordable housing? Well, we think about it in a few ways. The simplest way to answer that is we have a federal standard that people shouldn't pay more than 30% of their income, about a third of their income towards their housing. So that's a simple way of answering the question. But we also really believe that it isn't just about the housing being affordable. It is also about the quality of the housing. Think about the depth of whether it's asthma or lead paint or a whole range of problems that come from where we live. It's also about your neighborhood. The, the truth about housing is that where you live determines so many things in your life because when you choose a home, you choose a neighborhood, right? You choose where your kids go to school. You choose your access to jobs. Even one of the things we've seen, if your neighborhood isn't safe, if you don't have sidewalks, the ability to exercise, mental health, there's so many things that suffer based on the community that you live in. And so we look at it not just as the affordability and the quality, but also making sure that homes are part of neighborhoods of opportunity. And housing is the primary building block, if you will, of neighborhoods. We are thinking this week about home, the place where you go for comfort and safety, where you settle down and unwind, maybe share holiday time off with your loved ones. How much should that cost us? And how do we make it available to everybody? Because right now, it's not something you can take for granted. There's an official measure that determines when you can't afford the place you call home. Whether you rent or pay a mortgage, if you have to spend more than 30% of your income on housing, the federal government considers you cost-burdened and therefore at risk of losing your home. Right now, a record high number of Americans fit this definition, more than 21 million households. Nearly 12 million renters spend more than half of their income on housing. And we wonder why so many people feel so insecure about money. Perhaps it is more than gas prices, yeah? The problem is not that everybody wants an overly fancy place to live. On the contrary, over roughly the past decade or so, there has been a dramatic decrease in the supply of affordable housing all over the country. Now, there is a very old solution to this problem. It's called publicly subsidized housing. And I want to start this week by hearing from a young woman, a 17-year-old in New York City, for whom public housing has been a life-changing force. Fanta Kaba moved around a lot when she was growing up because her family couldn't afford a place to stay. Public housing solved that problem, but she and many others now fear that uh, the resource that gave her stability will not be available to the next generation of families. So she's been reporting on the future of public housing as part of WNYC's Radio Rookies program, which is a program that trains people to tell first-person stories of what's happening in their communities. We'll hear a couple of reports from Fanta in this show. First up, she kind of sets the stakes for our conversation. Here's Fanta. Your car needed maintenance. Aisha, you are so annoying. Like, you're always bothering me. You're really saying, I have a big family, so I barely get any privacy. When things get too loud or when my siblings annoy me, I just go to my room and shut the door. All right, so this is my room. On the wall, there's a bunch of posters 
One of them says, don't stop trying and life is fantastic. I love my room. It's my favorite place. It's the one place where I can get some peace and quiet. So there's a poster of Jimi Hendrix and there's another poster for Tim Paula and another one is Rolling Stones. Um, and then I do have to share it with my annoying little sister, but it's way better than when I had to share one room with all five of my siblings or when we live with my grandparents and aunts and uncles. Imagine 15 people in a two bedroom apartment. That was one of the places we stayed. Growing up, we moved around a lot. Harlem, Queens, the Bronx, even North Carolina for a while. My parents' jobs did not pay enough. My dad drove taxis, and my mom was a home attendant. All right, so when you first came to America, where did you first go? Like, what was your first place you stayed at? Um, when we first came to America, we was living in Manhattan. Okay. Yes, Harlem. That's my mom. She and my dad moved here from Guinea, hoping for a new life. What they didn't know is that finding a home in a place like New York City is almost impossible. When I was eight, after bouncing around, we ended up at a shelter. So how did, how did it feel to stay in the shelter? With like, you know, six kids, you know it's a temporary housing situation. Like, how was it for you? Well, it was not... That easy, yeah. But I was grateful. At least I have a place to stay with my kids, and it was okay. It was okay. It was okay. We had a roof over our heads, but the shelter never felt like my home. It had blank white walls, and I didn't put anything up. I knew we were just going to leave again. I felt really uncomfortable there. Then. The workers at the shelter helped my mom apply for a new apartment, a NYCHA apartment. That's what everyone calls the New York City Housing Authority, or our city's public housing, the projects. I knew there was some stigma around living in the projects, but my parents told us we were going to have a big new apartment with four bedrooms. They took us to Home Depot to pick out paint colors, and they said, this time, we're not moving again. NYCHA gave my family stability and community. Out of everywhere I've lived, this is the only place I've ever considered home. And I know thousands of New Yorkers can relate. Our buildings may not be the prettiest or the newest, but we know our rent won't go up. Everyone pays 30% of their income in rent, no matter how much or how little you make. recent uh, New York Times-Siena poll of voters in six battleground states, and this is really the, the most relevant stuff too, right, is 62% of Biden voters think the economy is only fair or poor compared with 97% of those who voted for Donald Trump. That's uh, And there know. are four basically indicators on that scale there, excellent and good or poor and only fair. And the generational differences here are striking, um, in my opinion. The... Uh, 89% of folks uh, in those, of Biden supporters in those swing states, 
um, who are 18 to 29 believe that the economy is poor, uh, either poor or only fair. And uh, for in the 30 to 44 age uh, cohort, that's 80% there. And you can draw some conclusions based on that, or at least a correlation, which is that the supporters 29 and under, I would say the, those are largely the folks who are being gouged as, by, uh, by landlords um, and who have to pay a ton in rent. And the 30 to 44 cohort are often people who are yeah. either also being gouged by rent, but maybe being are, are trying to save for a home and they're seeing how high housing prices are and how the Biden administration has ticked up the interest rates in an effort to combat inflation during his presidency, what, like 10 times at this point? It's more expensive to get a mortgage right now than it has been in decades. Well, I mean, to be clear, it's, I mean, the, uh, the Fed is, is, uh, theoretically independent. So it's not necessarily the Biden administration has done the, the, but that is the, uh, um, that is what's happened. Interest rate has gone essentially on a mortgage anyways, uh, from high twos, mid threes to mid sixes to mid sevens. And the difference on that in terms of your buying power, two things happen. One is that uh, to afford, even if prices of houses stay the same, the same house costs $250,000 or $300,000 as it did three years ago, the cost of carrying let's say a 270, let's say it's a $300,000 house and you've got to put down 10%. The cost of carrying that $270,000 mortgage, where at an interest rate of, let's say, 3% is somewhere around just back of the envelope, 1100 bucks, is now going to cost you 2200 bucks a month. Maybe $2,300, $2,400 a month. And what that does is, A, it prevents people from buying their first homes. And it increases the pressure on the rental markets. Raises the rents there. And B, it also keeps people locked in and have no choice but to stay where they are. So you may want, maybe you wanted to move because you've had another kid. And you want to get a bigger house. You can't. Because the 3.5% you're paying... Yeah. To buy the same house is going to cost you double because you, you don't get that. You don't get to carry that mortgage over. So if I'm in a $300,000 house and I'm paying 1100 bucks a month in, uh, in mortgage, I'm not going to go get a $500,000 house because the mortgage is going to like triple. And that explains those generational differences there where it's not like if this was just due to inflation and prices still remaining high, that would in theory, I would say, at least decrease some of these stark differences because, of course, you know, the more money, the older you have and you're supposed to have more savings, etc. But like prices would at least if that was the driving factor mitigate those stark differences to some degree but that's clearly not the case here right so 45 to 64 and 65 and older they're much more likely to already have a home and have paid off a good amount of it in it and and yeah not be as subject to this and all you need to do is i mean the the sort of like there's two things going on here there's 
you have the economic numbers that are showing like the GDP is growing at a good rate, that wages are up, uh, you know, uh, to a certain extent, even over inflation, although some of these prices are locked in. And again, housing is such a, a key component because it's not only impacts like your costs, but your flexibility. And um, this is, I, I think you also look at like how much wealth that's it. people at age 30 have now as oh, opposed yeah. to what they That's would what the have had is good for. 20 or 30 years ago um it's boomers had more money at uh, any given age yep. than gen xers that had any more money than millennials that had more money than gen z at the same age when you compare apples to apples Controlling for begin, inflation, controlling for all of those yeah, things. Yeah, it's just it's in terms of who's controlling yeah. the amount of wealth in the country. It's property relations, uh, it, like the, these sorts of things. Like that, we because we don't ask. We only ask by income, so it's under fifty k, five hundred. But we don't ask like how much property do you have. Are you a rentier? Are you a business owner? Or are you a worker? But age is a good proxy for that. So I'd yeah. imagine most sixty-five year olds are on but the rent. It used to be. Hmm. I mean, you. I'm saying that a thirty-year-old in the year 2000 had more 30 year old cohort had more of the wealth right yeah, of course than yeah. a 30 year old today right and so what Absolutely. we're dealing with is like at one point you hit a a uh critical mass where people are like this sucks mm -hmm. yep. and on top of which the boomers are like, you know, when I was your age, I wasn't whining about this as much. Well, and speaking of boomers, Washington Post, uh, November 13th, baby boomers are buying up all the houses this year. Median age for a repeat buyer was 58, according. Yeah, it must be nice. I'd probably think the economy was uh, well, pretty good. Well, and the reason why that is the case is because if you're at that age and you've owned your house for 25 years, you have a lot more equity in oh, it. Oh, totally. So when you turn around... The interest rate doesn't influence you as much because you're going to have to borrow if anything less and you can afford to put down and what, 50 60 70 percent 80 percent in your house what did those folks also pay for college as well and how much did they have in student loans like the uh, the uh, uh perception of the economy for people 44 and under that's going to affect that a ton um and also by income and i should also just say like osita you know uh Nuevo, who's been a guest on this program before, had the tweet just basically saying, you know how Biden um, could uh, get his numbers up, maybe is like actually start running on something and have some initiative and tell people what he He's wants Trump, to do. To yeah, what he wants to do if he gets reelected. And my suggestion would be a, a national housing initiative um, like uh, uh, whatever he wants, I'm sure it would be in some form of vouchers. I'm sure that, you know, it would not be exactly what I wanted. But we could have a beginning of a com uh, the conversation of repealing the Faircloth Amendment, um, where we build more affordable housing for people and hope and hopefully drive down some of these prices. Like, he, I don't know, they can workshop it. But that would yeah. be something that maybe young people would be incentivized to come to the polls for you for because it got, it got yeah. to be honest, there's a lot of folks who are pretty angry right now about not just the economy, but of course, the, the administration's enabling of Israel's uh, mass killing in Gaza. I'm curious about your thoughts on the intersection of housing and democracy. You know, it just is something 
That's a basic need that everybody must meet. You have to live somewhere. And since we are a pro-democracy podcast, we think a lot about the comments. Why is it important for a democratic society that everyone ought to be housed? Well, I will say for me, housing is a moral issue because it is one of our basic needs. And if you don't have a decent place to live, if you don't have a stable and affordable place to live, it is really hard to be a part of our democratic society in fundamental ways. Think about a child who's living in a homeless shelter or moving from couch to couch with relatives. Think about the challenge. We saw them during COVID, the ability even to learn remotely, so many other things that are really hard to do, hard to hold down a good job if your housing isn't stable. I do think there is a fundamental threshold of participation in our democratic society that requires housing to be a kind of platform or a foundation for that. And I will say, in in a country where it is an entitlement to get food assistance or to get assistance with health care, every child has the right to go to public school, only one out of five low-income people in this country that is eligible on an income basis actually gets housing assistance. 20% get it. We need to have a fundamental conversation about housing, whether you call it a right or say that everybody should get some assistance who needs it. So that that's the first thing I would say. The second is that given the levels of particularly street homelessness that we're seeing in this country now, I hear more and more from people that they are questioning the ability of our democratic form of government to work. People are asking, what is happening with my tax dollars? Is government actually functioning? Because homelessness is the sort of tip of the iceberg of all of our social challenges in this country. And it is visible to people in a way that so many other of our social challenges aren't. It is in many places, I think, starting to undermine the belief in our government and the ability of our democratic form of government to function if we can't do the basics to help people find a place to live. And then the last thing I would say about this is one of the things that we're seeing is more and more segregation along economic lines. And as our politics have become more skewed across education and income levels and economic levels, people are living with people like themselves. Wealthier people with wealthier people, Democrats with Democrats, Republicans with Republicans. And one of the things that I think is fundamentally contributing to the polarization that we're seeing in our country, the lack of a civic engagement with people that are different from yourself, is because housing affordability challenges are increasing not just our political polarization, but our geographic polarization that it is harder and harder for a low-income person, a person without a college degree, to live in, in many places. And that stratification and that polarization is compounding the challenges to our democracy in a way that I don't think we talk about enough. Most people will say, hey, look, it's Facebook. It's all of the kind of online ways that we're living in bubbles, but we're actually living 
in geographic bubbles. So I really worry about that because at the end of the day, what is the best way to change how people perceive people that are different from themselves? It's to have lived experience with them. It's for your kids to go to school with people that are different from themselves. It's for you to run in the grocery store or the post office or wherever it might be, somebody who has a different life experience and can begin to change your views about what the other is in this country. And I think our democratic ideals, if we can't respect difference in this country, it's going to be hard for our democracy to survive. NYCHA is notoriously slow when it comes to fixing things. Right now, there are hundreds of thousands of open work orders across the city. And it takes an average of 360 days for NYCHA to handle each one. As has been very well documented, we have not been getting sufficient uh, capital funding for decades to maintain the buildings at the level at which they should be maintained. That's Jonathan Gavaya. NYCHA's Executive VP for Real Estate Development. It is our hope that residents will see these opportunities as a way to bring the the comprehensive renovations that they need and enhanced services that they deserve. And here's the opportunity NYCHA came up with. Inviting private developers in to take over public housing. Because private companies do have money and they can take on debt to finance these big renovations. This public-private partnership plan comes from the federal government. It started 10 years ago in Greene County, Illinois. Since then, about 200,000 public housing units across the country have gone under private management. In big cities like Los Angeles and small cities like Ypsilanti, Michigan. Most of our tenant protections are supposed to stay the same. But... People don't trust these landlords to follow the rules. And I can see why. A report from a nonprofit called Human Rights Watch says there's not enough oversight of these private companies. And city officials in New York are investigating eviction rates in these buildings with private public partnerships. So tenants here are scared, and they're fighting back. What private developer do you know that gives a damn? about low-income people. NYCHA's plan puts for-profit real estate companies in charge. They sign a 99-year lease. Then they pay for all the renovations and bring in a private management company. They do everything, from collecting the rent to cleaning the hallways to handling leaks. So I wanted to know, what does it really mean for families like mine? Hi, I'm Sanji. Hi, nice to meet you. Sanji? Yes. Okay. Hi, my name is Fonta. Nice to meet you. Sanji Lopez grew up in Batanzas Houses, which is a few blocks away from my housing complex in the South Bronx. When Sanji's complex went under private management three years ago, Sanji's family thought the new company would come in and solve all of the leaks, mold, and pest issues in their apartment. They really showed us 
pictures of like the before and after of course that got everyone excited and riled up like seeing what could be you know oh they're gonna remodel everything they're gonna you know take the the cabinets down finally these old cabinets that we've been dealing with for mm -hmm. for decades at this point are going to be removed and going to be replaced with better cabinets um the walls are going to be repainted um the bathrooms are going to be redone so we were she was so excited about this plan which is called pat permanent affordability commitment together she even appeared in a promotional video nitra made i found it on youtube i trust that pact has the residents best interest in mind when did you realize like the renovations weren't all it was like cut up to be the pain was the first thing the pain started chipping in a matter of days um and i realized oh my gosh this wasn't really well done like it was i don't know if the contractor they hired wasn't good but like there was still like spaces where they didn't paint like spaces that were missing paint spaces that you know were painted over improperly spots that were chipping away so fast and also it was like incomplete in the bathroom you know like we had to complain about missing sealants around the the bathtub you know mold also again accruing even more than it did with nitro right and whenever i would tell the even though nitro usually takes forever to fix things sanji thinks this new system is much worse it's just send the email hope that somebody responds follow up again two or three times and then maybe they'll come you know um, she says some things are better the kitchen looks much nicer with dark brown cabinets and new countertops someone fumigates so there are fewer roaches but overall she said it feels like she traded one bad situation for another speaking to some neighbors on the same block they've told me things i've heard this quote twice same crap different toilet she laughs about it because sometimes that's all we can do shrug it off but the reality is this is the plan that was supposed to make everything better and residents in her building don't have another shot at another plan Their complex is under private management now for the next 99 years. Still we have issues with heat and hot water during the winter time, so that didn't go away. The issues didn't go away. You know like we thought that privatization was going to solve all of our issues, but it didn't. We're having a winter membership drive to close out the year. So if you've been waiting for a special occasion to sign up or buy a membership as a gift, Now's the time. We're a small team working on a small budget and sometimes we get tossed around with the bigger ebbs and flows of the podcasting business and we can't always depend on steady ad revenue, which is why members have always been the most important part of keeping the show running. So just because we've been around for a long time, don't think that we don't need your support because we absolutely do. For the holiday season, membership is on discount for 20% off. That goes for gift membership as well. So grab that while you can and lock in that price for as long as you keep your membership. You'll get bonus clips and chapter markers in every episode, bonus episodes where the team get together and make each other laugh while discussing important issues, and an ad-free experience all the way around. Just head to bestofleft.com/support for details. That link is in the show notes and thanks for your support. Now your story talks a bit about how um Rhode Island in particular the state legislature in June approved this new pilot program for meant to target housing. Um can you talk a bit about 
that program and what makes it different um, and what makes it encouraging, maybe something that other states could follow. Um, yeah. And, and I should say, and this was my story and I, and I feel bad about it, but it's, it's certainly, it only adds to the thing I actually learned following my story coming out. My story looked at a couple of states. Rhode Island was a big one, Colorado, Hawaii, California. Um, it turns out like three years ago, Massachusetts actually, I think they were, I think Massachusetts was first and that they have been doing on a smaller scale. Um, but what they've been doing, which is, which is really new, some, like arguably not done since pre new deal is they are, the state is stepping up saying we're going to put money in to develop our own, develop new mixed income housing, affordable and market rate. And we're going to own it. And, and we're going, that's going to be, and I think something to understand is that, and you kind of briefly mentioned this earlier, but in the 1990s, Congress uh, like basically effectively made it so that it's really, really hard now to build any new federal public housing due to something called the Fair Cloth Amendment. Um, that's something Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been trying to repeal, um, but it is still around. And so it's why, um, I mean, right now with federal public housing, there's tens of billions of dollars in backlogged repairs. That's where the leaky roofs and the clogged toilets and the mold and the asbestos, all that stuff that's not getting repaired. Congress isn't is behind in funding those repairs, but they also are not building new units. We're, we're, we're fighting to maybe keep the units we have intact and out of disrepair. So what is really, ex what's really interesting and to me exciting about what's happening in those states I was mentioning earlier, like Rhode Island, is they're saying, okay, the federal government can't build new public housing for all the reasons we just talked about, but we are, are going to invest ourselves and we are going to build new housing and we're going to own it, which is really sort of kind of, you know, a very different way of thinking about housing because a lot of times the way affordable housing development has kind of worked in the past is like, they've been on these like 15, 20 year subsidy things and the government will, will basically give tons and tons of subsidies to a private company. And then the private company will build it and they will be under certain restrictions about how high they can charge in rent. But then after the 15, 20 years runs up, then it's out of their hands and then becomes and then, you know, might not even stay affordable after that. And it can become, you know, in the private hands. So this is like new in the sense that they're building housing and they're saying, and we're going to keep it. And we're going to also capture all the value that comes from owning that, you know, unit. And we might be able to reinvest that in more housing production or other social services. And so I find it like a very interesting example of how the public sector is thinking about flexing its muscles that they haven't really done in a very long time. Well, I mean, it's just, it, it's common sense, frankly, to if taxpayer money, not to use a, 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 an old, I guess, you know, small C conservative political term, but if taxpayer money is going towards the subsidization of this, then the government should, should own it. They should be the public developer of this project as opposed to just subsidizing it under private management which is wildly inefficient but it's just a way to to get around the easiest answer to these questions which i think a lot of members of our government don't actually want to reckon with it reminds me of 
I use this example all the time during COVID, Nancy Pelosi bending over backwards for co- COBRA subsidies as opposed to temporary ex- temporarily expanding Medicare because, right. you know, we can't do that because of what that might lead to as opposed to just doing what's most straightforward. And and I think I do think part of what's happening here is, you know, public housing, federal public housing doesn't have a great reputation right now. Um, I think part of that is because, you know, of, of rules and, and, you know, defunding that Congress has done. Um, and it doesn't mean all public housing has to be bad. We have strong models elsewhere and some, some states do a better job than others. But what it, but what it has meant is that people, there's a lot of skepticism right now that the government can, can get in the housing game and do it well. And like that there's, there's a, well, they think of the Robert Taylor homes in Chicago, which is sort of like the notorious example of, of, you know, segregated, underfunded, problematic towers. Um, And so part of what I think is for all the people who are, who are getting into this space, they're saying, look, yes, mistakes were made. Yes. We know there are all these problems with federal housing program, but that doesn't mean we can't get it right. And that doesn't mean we're, we're doomed to make the same mistakes again. And so I think a lot of what's happening now and a really sort of very competent kind of successful uh, place where this is happening is in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, and that's at the county level. But like, that's a place where they are showing how you, how this can be done, how it can be done in the kind of apartments you or I would probably love to live in, like next to transit, really nice looking. You can't even, you wouldn't even know it's public housing in the traditional sense of what we sort of imagine that to look like. Um, and I think part of what this will require is just getting like some more proof points like Montgomery County, like maybe like Rhode Island, more like Massachusetts and Colorado and Hawaii to sort of help people kind of shake the stereotype of what they think American governments building housing can look like and mean, because we have such a stigmatized image based on, you know, how the federal program has, has kind of shaken out. Well, the federal program, they've made it anemic and then they say, well, it's unfixable. And so we are, we're we're putting a moratorium on it. And when you talk about Montgomery County, um, that is a suburb, right? And, and so that I think changes uh, uh, the, the conversation around public housing as well. Um, and also just the outcomes, because we've seen urban sprawl, people having to move out of the cities in order to afford a place to live. Um, and it, when you, I think, make public housing more widespread as opposed to confines to certain areas of the cities, then you're including middle class renters as well, as you write about, which m- might make these programs more durable. Part of your organization is solutions, which I understand to mean that you work in collaboration with local partners on policy and on systems change. What kind of systems change do you think is most necessary in this moment? And then what are the public policy ideas that you think are most promising to get us there? Well, right now, given the scale of the challenges that we have, I think there is an opportunity to create systems change at a scale we haven't seen. And, you know, my old boss, 
Barack Obama used to say, a crisis is a terrible thing, but it's also a terrible thing to waste. And I do think the fact that housing has now become a challenge everywhere in this country and that more and more people believe that there needs to be system change, that we need to approach this in a different way, there is an opportunity to build at the federal level, but also at the state and local level, new solutions and policy change. One of the things that I think is most powerful is an increasing understanding that we're just not building enough housing and that barriers that stand in the way are outdated zoning codes, many of them racially and economically directed where communities don't want low-income people living there and have resisted the ability to have denser housing, more affordable housing. And we're really seeing that start to change. Zoning is generally controlled at the local level. We're seeing states and local communities stand up and say, we're going to create what's called inclusionary zoning rather than exclusionary zoning. That means when you build a new building, you could allow it to be a bigger building, but require, for example, that 20 or 30 or 40 percent of the housing has to be affordable housing. We're seeing more and more communities look at places where there are subway or train stops and saying, because of the access to jobs that you get from a transit stop, we ought to be building bigger buildings there. And so they're upzoning. And we've also seen a lot of places say, why does it take three or five years to build an apartment building? Why are we subjecting many of these processes to build new housing to unending meetings and requirements that end up standing in the way of creating housing, making it much more expensive or just eliminating it altogether. And so states like California and traditionally blue states, but also you see red states like Florida and Georgia and others that are coming together across very different political lines, housing activists, advocates for racial justice, combining with builders and private sector organizations saying the Lack of housing is really standing in the way of the future of our communities. And I think that really is bigger picture. More and more places around the country are not able to attract the workers that they need. We now have studies showing that GDP growth in large parts of our country is slowing down because of housing affordability challenges. And so people are seeing that housing isn't just a moral issue or an issue of justice for low-income people, it's a larger challenge for our society in a way that I think you're starting to see kind of political strange bedfellows come together and start to make change at a systems level that is really different. And that's, that's what we do at Enterprise. The solutions part of it is actually creating new policy that is really going to make systems change. So- What's a gold standard for you? What's an area where you're like, wow, they're doing it right. Like, that's where we should be living or that's how we should be living. <laughs> well, what I would say is I wish there were a nirvana for housing somewhere in the country. I've been working on this a long time. And, and I think lots of places have really interesting pieces of this. Just to give you an example, the city of Minneapolis recently eliminated single family zoning. Eliminated? Eliminated it. Um, wow. First place in the country to do that. And that has started to make real change. But there are also more incremental ways that people are taking this on. Part of the problem here is 
the perception is when you hear affordable housing or you think about zoning changes, you're imagining you live in a single family home and there's going to be a 20 story building next door to you. That's not really the way it works. One of the exciting things that's starting to happen in many communities is a really wonky sounding name, which is accessory dwelling units, ADUs. Basically, that's like a granny flat in the backyard. If you have a single family home, you can build a garage with an apartment above it. And you can go from one unit of housing on a parcel to two. That effectively could double the amount of housing you have in a community, but in a way that doesn't really change the look of the community that much or create challenges in a way that some people perceive when you start to talk about these issues. So that's been a big policy change that we've started to see in, in Los Angeles. It's been tens of thousands of new units that are can be created through that. That's true even here in New York City, where we have many, many communities that are single family homes and lower density. So there are lots of different strategies that depend on where you're living. In some places, it's going to be much denser, taller buildings. In others, it's going to look different. But the fundamental issue is understanding that we have millions of people who don't have an affordable place to live because we're just not building enough housing in the country. I think most Americans are familiar with the word gentrification. I'm not sure all of them understand exactly what it means or how it plays out. Can you can you describe what you mean when you talk about hyper gentrification in the subtitle of your book and and how it might be different the way it's playing out in Paris than than the way it might play out in uh, New York or in Boise? Yeah, I mean, I think I think, you know, when when we use when I use the word gentrification, I'm, I'm talking about an economic process that I think they're really two fundamental um, kind of manifestations of this process. One is rent hikes. So rapid, so, so significant rent hikes, um, taking place in, in urban areas. And the second part of that is, is displacement. So you have people that are being forced to, to leave and you have this process that can, you know, completely transform urban areas. We've seen it in so many cities in the United States. Um, you know, I, I'm from the Northeast. I think about a place like New York, New York City that has just been changed so much from the city that I knew that, I, you know, when I was growing up there or when I grew up around there, excuse me, or San Francisco. You have a lot of these cases in the United States of these cities that have been just completely transformed, low income, working class people having to leave. And that changes the character of, of, of cities. And in a lot of ways, it's, 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 it's tragic to see the kind of identity being, being sucked out of, of these places because normal people, ordinary people can't afford to live in them. So that's the process. Paris, you know, I use the word hyper gentrification because it's already a city that, um, has a, a lot of wealth in it. We're not talking about, uh, neighborhoods that are, that are very, very poor. We're talking about neighborhoods that are, you know, where ordinary people can still afford to live, um, that have, you know, some amount of, of wealth in them. But I think we've seen so many waves of this play out that and I think we're kind of at a very advanced stage in the city of Paris. Um, one other kind of very specific thing about Paris is that the city is is already very, very dense. Um, and so it means that one of the solutions, you know, people talk about for, for dealing with housing is often to, to build more housing. That's part of it, increasing supply. But that can be quite hard to do in a place like Paris, where the city is already tremendously dense. Um, so that, that's just kind of one, one, one important aspect I would underline. I, 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 reading in your book, you were talking about how you can still find an apartment, at least in this part of Paris where you were living for five, six, seven hundred euros a month. But it 
it's going to be a disaster. It's, it's, it's going to have a bathroom down the hall or it's going to, you know, uh, open onto a busy street or uh, you'll have you have to deal with rats crawling all over you. Um, how bad is it? I mean, how, how bad has the situation become? And, and to what extent have the have the working class been driven out of Paris and its and its suburbs? Yeah, you know, the, the red hikes have, uh, you know, I think since the year 2000, roughly, you know, have gone up. Uh, housing costs have, inc- have increased three times since the year 2000. Wow. Um, you know, you have over you have over 10, three times 000. or 300 percent. Two, 200 percent. So so, you know, you have t- more than 10,000 people that um, have been leaving the city every year, according to the, the official data. Um, and as you mentioned, yes, yeah, so, so these neighborhoods, people are living in, you know, kind of cramped spaces to to be able to to hold on. But I think, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I didn't want to you know, the, the, the book is, uh, is is kind of trying to raise the alarm in, 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 in some respects in the Anglophone world, but it's also trying to celebrate these neighborhoods for what they are. And, you know, um, these are tremendously diverse places. I think that's, that's something that can often be forgotten about in, in, you know, outside of France, just how multicultural and diverse of a city Paris is and really France is as, as a country. And so, you know, the, the places that I'm, that I'm, talking about in the book, you know, have have large shares of, of immigrant population from West Africa, from North Africa, from China, from India. We don't often think about, you know, Paris as being this sort of melting pot, but it is in a lot of respects. And that's because of historically, you know, there's been there's been affordable housing in the city. And that, you know, I'm trying to kind of also show when you take that away out of the equation, it, you know, it means that you have a, um, you know, negative impact on, on the character of the city. And I think you know, just another aspect to to highlight what we're talking about, you know, why these neighborhoods have persisted over the years. Right now, there's one really key, uh, you know, many key elements, but I think one above all that I that I want to highlight, and that is we have something called social housing in uh, in, in France. So that's that's state managed, state regulated housing uh, at below market rates. And um, if you look at these neighborhoods where the working class still lives, you have tr- you have pretty high shares of social housing. That's one of the really important policy tools that, that that's quite effective that we don't have, unfortunately, in the United States. How would we do that in the United States? How would the how would that lesson from Paris translate into into a city in America? Yeah, you know, I, I think you know there there are a few kind of policy measures. So social housing is a big one. It, it, it's interesting. I think the conversation is shifting a little bit. It seems like, although I'm obviously not not you know on the ground in, in the U.S. But there seems to be an acknowledgement that that maybe we should be turning more to these kind of solutions we have in Europe for dealing with housing, social mm-hmm. housing being one of them. I think Seattle just, um, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of years ago passed a, a referendum that created a, a social housing agency to start experimenting with this. Because, you know, if there's one thing, again, I'll, I'm repeating myself, but I think it's so important to emphasize for, for American audiences. In the U.S., we often talk about just, you know, the Yimbies versus the NIMBYs. You know, yes, in my backyard, not in my backyard. I'm simplifying, but oftentimes the debate can kind of be, you know, simplified into this, you know, do you want more supply? Do you not want more supply? And, you know, obviously that's part of the equation, but, you know, it, it depends who, who owns the housing, who owns that supply. Social housing is the government stepping into the market and saying, we're going to um, uh, build housing or manage the housing and regulate the price. So social housing is so key. And then rent controls are another tool that we do see in the United States, uh, to some extent, in Paris, they're they're experimenting with them again now after a long break of not having rent controls. That's a very 
um, you know, it's an, it's an important tool as well. It's not a, a magic silver bullet, but I think, you know, let's look at how Europeans regulate housing to think about, you know, how can we deal with some of these problems that we have in the United States? I hope that's one of the takeaways, at least. of, of how, does, how does social uh, housing differ from what we refer to in America as the projects? Yeah, well, you know, I think I think one big difference is that you've had just a lot more government funding of of social housing. It's been recognized as a as a kind of important policy tool, and it's not reserved for the the only the the, the least well off in France. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not reserved for just the lowest uh, income bracket. You know, people who are uh, lower to middle income, even to middle income, have the right to have social housing. And it's actually even a, a source of debate in Paris where people people are saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be allowing so many middle-class people access to social housing. So, um, you know, you do have this tradition of having uh, so so good funding for the program, uh, quality housing stock too. That, that's such an important point. If you look at the social housing that's being built in Paris today, um, you know, these are, these are nice looking places. They're, they're enjoyable places to live. And I've got, I got to tour a few of them for, for, for reporting. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a question of, of political will too. You know, it's been a priority. This has been, a, uh, you know, a priority to fund this and to use it as a tool to combat uh, the housing crisis in Europe. And I think, you know, that we're starting to to maybe think that way a little bit in the U.S., but but maybe maybe not there yet. We've just heard clips today, starting with Future Hindsight describing the housing crisis. Notes from America featured a personal story about how public housing can provide stability. The Majority Report put the housing crisis in the broader context of current economics and interest rates. Future Hindsight looked at the moral issue of housing and its connection to democracy. Notes from America explored one effort to improve public housing through privatization. The Majority Report looked into publicly owned housing. Future Hindsight discussed how the political landscape may be ripe for transformational change on housing, and the Tom Hartman program compared the French housing plan with the U.S. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Notes from America discussing various ideas, including public housing residents getting a vote in their own futures. They found out earlier this year, I want to say in July, that there would be a vote. And the three options were to stay in Section 9, stay as is. The other one was Permanent Affordability Commitment Together Program Pact, or the Public Housing Preservation Trust, which is an untested model. And Channel 4 News in the UK did a report on one social housing effort. The work of Peter Barber, an architect who focuses on urbanism and social housing. He's won accolades and admirers for his innovative approach. He takes small parcels of land and turns them into a housing haven always centered around a street, a courtyard, where people mix, where communities form. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support. Remember that during December, we're offering 20% off on memberships for yourself or as a gift, so definitely take advantage of that while you can, or shoot me an email, request any financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. For more on housing in America, I have a couple of our episodes to recommend. 
Number 1496, Home is Where the Hardship Is, was published back in June 2022, which discussed the growing crisis, including the fact that corporations buying up houses is a big part of the problem of the housing shortage. And 1565, Co-Housing Builds Community and Fights Loneliness, is just from June of this year, 2023, and looks at a non-traditional form of housing that increases housing density and helps form community at the same time. So check those out. Again, those were episodes 1496 and 1565 in your podcast feed. Now, to wrap up, I just want to add a point about housing regulation, or maybe regulation more broadly. I came across this yesterday. A YouTuber was making a point about how a relatively small regulation on fire safety has had a massive impact on housing in North America. So let's just walk through the highlights real quick. This type of apartment building is called the point access block. Its defining feature is that all its units share one staircase and elevator to the ground floor, which allows for a smaller, skinnier apartment. And these buildings are a common element in some of the most desirable neighborhoods in the world. So why don't we build these apartments here in North America? Well, in Canada and the US, all apartments above two or three stories need to give their units access to two separate staircases. We're some of the only countries across the world that are this strict about this requirement. In most other places, it only kicks in after six or more stories. And this one rule has huge implications. Staircases take up a lot of space, and fitting two of them in a small building means that there's much less usable floor space on every floor. As a result, developers here construct much larger buildings so that the staircases and hallways take up a much smaller proportion of the overall building. So, American apartment buildings end up being big and bulky, which means they're harder and more expensive to build. Single staircase buildings, on the other hand, can be much smaller, which means you can often build them on just one property. I think that makes these buildings an important solution right now, because cities today are increasingly looking to add more housing into their single-family neighborhoods. Properties in these areas are already small to begin with, and I think it'd be very difficult to add more housing at scale without single staircase buildings. Another weird problem is that double-stair apartment buildings end up only having apartments with windows on one side. So, like, corner units are pretty rare, and windows on opposite walls that maximize breathe-through air ventilation, it's nearly non-existent in the U.S. And then on top of the window problem, which, you know, if you think about windows are nice, nice to have more windows, so Americans get fewer windows, but the windows problem actually compounds because it makes it difficult to build apartment layouts with more than one or maybe two bedrooms. So three-bedroom apartments are also extremely rare. This is more clear if you can see the visuals in the video. This is a problem because our cities are facing a major shortage of apartments with three or more bedrooms, the kinds of spaces that are better suited for families. In Metro Vancouver, three-bedroom apartments make up 2% of units in the region's rental market, while studios and one-bedroom apartments make up almost 75%. And this shortage of family-friendly apartments is where I really see the potential of point-access block buildings. When you have one staircase, you don't need a hallway, which means that units can wrap around the staircase in all sorts of different ways. That makes it easier to have more walls with windows, which allows for apartment layouts with more than one bedroom. Check out this apartment layout from France. You can see that the single staircase allows for a three-bedroom unit, two two-bedrooms, and two one-bedrooms. 
Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it's easy to never think about how three-bedroom apartments basically don't exist in the U.S., or, or to just assume that, well, you know, there's no room for that many bedrooms in an apartment. Everyone knows that. Apartments just aren't that big. And what logically follows is that if you need more than two bedrooms, like if you want a bedroom, a kid's room, and a home office, which of course lots more people do now after the pandemic, then the only option is to move to the suburbs and buy a bigger, detached, less efficient house than you would have otherwise if only three-bedroom apartments had existed. Now, the two-staircase rule was put in place with very good intentions. It's all about giving people escape routes in case of fire. And that rule is more strict in North America because more of our buildings are made of wood than in Europe. And that rule definitely saved lives over the past, you know, 100 or however many years. But now the question is whether we actually still need it. As you can see on this chart, the US and Canada don't have the fewest fire deaths per capita, not by a long shot. It turns out there are so many other factors that contribute towards fire safety. In fact, it seems like the real success story of our building codes hasn't been so much about helping people escape fires, but preventing them in the first place. For example, regulating the materials buildings are made out of, requiring fire doors, pressurized staircases, sprinklers, fire alarm systems, and fire extinguishers. Today, almost every aspect of your home has been vetted for fire safety. Even your mattress is required by law to be made out of fire-resistant materials. So my takeaway from all this is about the potential benefits of reviewing old regulations to make sure they're still accomplishing what we need them to. There are a couple of old anecdotes that come to mind in cases like this. The first is a story about an NPR engineer who asked about very slightly changing the format of a show he was working on and was told, no, we can't do that because there's an NPR rule about show structure and that change would go against the rule. So the engineer looked into the rule and found that it dated back to when they had to design the show format in a way that would give editors enough time to physically cut audio tape and put it together between segments. Obviously something that's not needed anymore. Another story is about a family recipe that had been handed down and included some odd directions that no one could really understand the benefit of, but people followed the instructions specifically because, you know, that's how grandma did it. Don't ask questions. And I think that eventually, you know, someone asked, hey, hey grandma, these instructions in this recipe, why, why do you have to do it this way? And grandma explained, oh, well, that was just to accommodate the extremely small oven I had back in the day. You know, it required some creative thinking to get everything to come out right with such a constrained space. So, you know, that we wrote the recipe for that reason alone. But like, no, of course, you don't have to do it that way now. We have bigger kitchens, bigger ovens, <laughs> the whole thing, right? So this certainly isn't a lesson about how regulation is bad across the board, right? The narrator from the video didn't even want to abolish the rule entirely, just tweak it so that it only applied to taller buildings where it made more sense and not apply to shorter apartment buildings under six stories where it was just not as necessary. So old rules rarely need to be entirely thrown out, but they may need some reviewing and some tweaking from time to time. The double staircase rule in North American apartment buildings seems to be a pretty good example of this, but there are undoubtedly others. And in a crisis, like the housing crisis we are in, we should be looking at every option available. And besides, European-style apartments 
sound much nicer to live in and are much more efficient than having families being forced out into the suburbs into their own single-family homes. So the benefits to revising old rules may often compound in the positive direction, just as the drawbacks to those rules can sometimes compound in the negative. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Ben, who's making his triumphant return to the volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and a bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support. You'll find that link in the show notes along with a link to join our Discord community where you can continue the discussion. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.